After 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Tuesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We are in the midst of what we call the nine days format, the first nine days of the month of Av. In the days leading up to Tisha B'Av, we uh, each and every year turn into a uh, an essentially a uh, spoken word program. Uh, with some guests, but primarily with the uh, amazing lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine being the centerpiece of our programming. We started this lecture yesterday, and uh, we promised to uh, restart it from its beginning early this morning, and obviously reach its conclusion sometime in the 7 o'clock hour. Rabbi Beryl Wine has a series entitled Jewish Values, and um, yesterday we were treated to his... Uh, his segments on uh, peace and um, a segment that he did on uh, proper behavior, and uh, today we will uh, open up our radio broadcast with his uh, presentation regarding family from the Jewish Value Series of Rabbi Beryl Wine right here at JM in the AM. Family is a very difficult uh, topic to discuss because it's uh, sensitive, emotional, and uh, everybody has their own stories to tell about it. But family as a value uh, is the, one of really the basic pillars of Judaism. The Rabboni Shalom said to us, Irak eschem yodati mikol mishpachoso adamah. Your family do I know from all of the families which exist in the world. And uh, Judaism, which is a faith, uh, Jews are a nation, Jews are a race, Jews are a religion, the Jews are a family. And we see ourselves as being a family. And the family has uh, ups and downs. But a family has a bond uh, that is able to span all generations. And really that indicates more than anything else what the Jewish people are. If we were not a family, for instance, we would not have been able to accomplish the ingathering of the exiles which has taken place here in the land of Israel over the last 60 years. People from all parts of the world, uh, different cultures, different experiences, different colors, uh, different traditions. But because it's family, it's family. I uh, always uh, think of uh, the famous story with Rabbi Soloveitchik 
uh, in New York. Uh, the Soloveitchiks are well known for their family affiliation, uh, no matter uh, what or who you are. If you're related to them, so then, uh, then they'll go through anything for you. So uh, he was uh, in his uh, heyday as a, uh, as a Rosh Yeshiva, he was saying the shir in Yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzchok Honen in New York, and uh, he was a terror. I mean, he, uh, the, the students, uh, he brooked uh, no uh, comments and uh, silly questions, and, you know, you sat there in awe. And uh, once he was teaching, uh, and he explained a matter, uh, a difficult matter in the Talmud, and the student had the temerity to raise his hand and say, Rebbe, Reb Aaron doesn't say like that. So Rabbi Soloveitchik assumed that Reb Aaron meant Reb Aaron Cutler, the, uh, the other major Rosh Yeshiva in America, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, the Kletzka Rosh Yeshiva. So he waved them off, you know, he kept on going. But the student persisted. And after another minute, he raised his hand and he said, Rebbe, but Ramaran doesn't say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, fixed him with an atomic look. And he said, uh, who cares what Ramaran says, right? We're, uh, and he kept on going. The student does it for a third time. He raises his hand and he says, Rebaran, Rebbe, Rebaran does not say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik is, you know, the steam is coming out from his ears. And uh, he says, I don't care what Rabbi Cutler says. And the student said, no, not Rebaran Cutler, your brother Rebaran. He said, oh, get up and say what he says, please. <laughs> The Torah saw the Jewish people as a family. And therefore, family became a value. And the preservation of family is, one could say, the primary value in Jewish life. When God chooses Avraham Avinu to be the father of our people, and the one that brings monotheism to the world, to other civilizations as well, so God does not list his piety, nor does God list his intelligence, nor does he even list the sacrifice and the risk of life that Avram Avinu undertook in order to promote monotheism. That he went into the furnace of fire, or the ten nisionos that he had. None of that is listed. The Rabboni Sholem says, Why did I choose Avram? Ki yodativ l'man asher yitzavez bonovez beiso achron. He will be able to build a family. He'll be able to inculcate it in his children and in generations that come afterwards that they will go in the path of God and they'll continue in his mission. So it makes Avram, and we call him Avram Avinu, Avram our father. We don't call him by any other name. We call him our father. So what makes Avram Avram his family. And therefore, the Chumash Breshis deals only with the story of family. Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, the brothers. 
So the family there also has ups and downs. Has misunderstandings and disputes. But at the end of the Parsha, at the end of the Chumash, at the end of the story, the Jewish people are a family. And that became our hallmark. And the Torah says, You're not allowed to close your eyes to your relatives, to your family. And therefore, Jews are bound together by a bond of blood, not only by a bond of faith. And that's a very, very important thing because it colors our entire attitude. It enables us, you know, somehow to be able to rise above all of the problems that we have and all the differences that we have. And we're a very fractious people, we have always been. And we're able to rise above all of that because, you know, it's my brother. So let's hear what he has to say. In our time, in our generation, over the last 35 years, especially in Western civilization, in the United States, in Europe, and here in Israel as well, unfortunately, the family has been under siege. The traditional concepts, marriage, children, family, two parents in a home, all of that has been uh, decimated. I want to read for you a uh, portion of an article that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, I think it was either last Saturday or Sunday. Uh, the article was written by a man by the name of David Brooks. And he uh, imagines that he meets Karl Marx today. And Karl Marx tells him that his old manifesto and what he said about the working class and about the uh, capitalism, etc., uh, he admits that all of that is wrong, right? That's been disproved. But he has a new manifesto. And the new manifesto, uh, he uh, writes about it, what Marx would say today. And here is one uh, point that he makes uh, that's really significant and significant, I think, to our conversation here this evening. He said, More than the Roman emperors, more than the industrial robber barons, the male factors of the educated class seek not only to dominate the working class, but to decimate it. For 30 years they have presided over failing schools, without fundamentally attempting to transform them. They have imposed a public morality that affords them maximum sexual opportunity, but guarantees maximum domestic chaos and ruin for those who are lower down the ladder. In 1960, there were not big structural differences in the United States between rich and poor families. In 1960, more than 75% of poor couples were headed by a married couple. Now, less than a third are. 
while the rates of single parenting have barely changed for the educated elite, the family structure has disintegrated for those lower down the oppressed masses. Poor children are likely to live with are less likely to live with both biological parents, hence less likely to graduate from school, less likely to get a job, less likely to be in a position to challenge the hegemony of the privileged class. Family inequality produces income inequality from generation to generation. It generates crime, violence, and eventually the destruction of society. Well said, Carl. Because that's what happened. So that you have entire generations that grow up without family, without a sense of family. And without that sense... Uh, the child is automatically disenfranchised, sees the world through skewed eyes, is at a disadvantage. And the Torah came to emphasize the importance of family. And therefore, amongst Jews, which were always, we were persecuted, uh, 99% of all Jews in the exile were poor, it's not like it is today. This is the most affluent generation in Jewish history. Absolutely the most affluent generation. And we take it for granted that it's supposed to be that way. Uh, but it was not that way. It was not that way uh, as late as uh, 45 years ago. It was not that way. But even in the poorest of families, there was a structure. There was a family. Somebody was home for you. Somebody cared about you. And therefore, the people could be successful. But if there is no family structure, and if it's all ad hoc, so then uh, we live in a time of great difficulties. And we see it here in our country as well, the crime rate. Every day you hear another murder, uh, two murders, three This was a country that never had a murder. When they built the first uh, prison in Tel Aviv in the 1920s, so the prison stood empty for three years. They didn't have any customers. And then one day in Tel Aviv, the police finally caught a ganiv, they caught a thief. So Bialik wrote a poem in honor of the occasion because he said, now at least we're a normal people. So I said, ah, we're plenty normal. Because the breakdown of family eventually leads to the breakdown of society. It gives rise to all of the ills that we are aware of. So it says in the Torah, We will have it uh, shortly in the Chumash Bamidbar. Uh, Moshe heard that the people uh, wept, the families wept. So the Gemara says, what does it mean, Bochel Mishpachosov? It should say, Hamishpachot Bachu. The families wept. What's Bochel Mishpachosov? To the Indian, to the 
uh, idea regarding the idea of family. So the Gemara says, Al iske mishpachosav. They wept because of the fact that now that they had the Torah, the Torah emphasized family. It limited them. It limited them sexually. It limited them in social values. It kept them at home. It gave them a different sense of responsibility. They wanted to have the freedom. They wanted to be of a generation that does whatever it wants to do. Everything goes. And therefore, that's why they wept. They wept over the fact that family means responsibility. And that without family responsibility, not only did Jewish people have no future, individual Jews have no future, and society general generally has no future. The rabbis emphasized family to such an extent that they said uh, wild things, uh, at least on the surface. Rabbi Lezer says, Bitcho Bogra, you have a daughter that's old enough to get married, and you can't find the suitable shidduch. Shachrer Avdecho, you have a slave. Free the slave and marry him off to her. Now, what's that? That is the emphasis on family. And the emphasis on family is such that for the sake of family, as we'll see in a few moments here, I hope, we'll see that the rabbis advocated great compromises, personal compromises. For the sake of family. And uh, in our world uh, where uh, matchmaking has gone wild, where it's uh, almost, uh, it would almost be uh, humorous if it weren't so tragic, uh, the Torah looked at it differently. And that's what Rabbi Eliezer said. Family is an overriding value. It even overrides uh, the search for the perfect mate. Because uh, basically, uh, except for rabbis, they're hard to find. And uh, so all of life is compromised. Family is compromised. Marriage is compromised. But if the value of family is primary, if that's the priority in life, and the priority in Jewish life, so then it overrides uh, many times uh, personal wants and ideas. So we're going to have two sides to the question. Uh, which the Gemara discusses and does not ever come to a conclusion. One side of the discussion is uh, not to bring into one's family people that are not proper. They will disrupt the family. So the Gemara teaches us, for instance, There's a family that one of the sons marries a woman who is not proper for him. 
Now, Eino Hogenes Lo, in its uh, Talmudic sense, in the sense of Halacha, means that she was forbidden to him. It's a relationship which the Halacha forbids. But in its broadest sense, it means it's just not fitting. It's not right. doesn't belong in that family. So the Gemara says... Boyin bnei mishpocha. That was the custom in the time of the Talmud. The other members of the family came. Umevin chovis mleya peros, and they brought a barrel, a bushel full of fruit. Vishovrinosa beemsa rechova, and in the mid they would put it down in the middle of the street. Everybody would then be looking and they would break the barrel or break the bushel open so that the fruit would roll on the street. And people would say, Mazer, what, what is that about? The Omrim and they would say, Achenu b'nei Yisrael, our brothers, the children of Israel. Shimu, listen to us. Achinu ploni, our brother so and so. And they said his name. Nosa Isha Sheino Geneslo has married a woman that's improper. As, therefore, he has damaged our family. And he's damaged the society as well. And we want you to know about it. And we see in the Gomorrah, we'll see in a minute that the Gomorrah is in favor of uh, public acknowledgement that it was a mistake rather than to cover it up. Because by covering it up, there's an acquiescence to it. I have this que- I've had this question so many times in, uh, in my rabbinic career, it's tragic, but it's the question that exists, and certainly in the American rabbinate. Right? This, he's an Orthodox Jew. you got a cousin, and the cousin is going to marry a non-Jew. And his aunt... Uh, who was his beloved aunt, and who went to every birthday party, and, uh, you know, and they always had, his aunt insists that he should come to the wedding. They should go, because what can we do? We have to make her closer, we have to bring her, you know. And, and, uh, shall he go? So my answer was always a resounding no. They can do what they want, but you don't have to be part of it. And so then I would get a call from the aunt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I always ended up the villain. But this Gemara shows us uh, that, uh, you know, that if we have to break the bushel in the street and say it's not proper, it's not proper. There has to remain some standard of what a family is. And if everything goes as it does in today's world, there is no standard. So then, Ma said, and what's the noise about? How how can you uh, begin even to attack the problem of intermarriage if you accept it as a fact and you accept it as uh, something that uh, in many instances is even overlooked? I even had a worse scenario... But that was when I was younger, so I was, uh, you know, when you're younger, you know a lot. 
as, as you get older, you know less and less. So I was really uh, young then, I think it was the first or second year that I was in the Rabbonus. And someone came to me that uh, uh, their relatives uh, were having a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah was going to be celebrated in a non-Orthodox congregation. And what should we do? So uh, I told them not to go. So they said, how can we not go? It's our relative, and it's a close relative and everything, and we won't go to Davin there. And they, you know. I said, yeah, I said, I'm not telling you what to do. You asked me what, uh, you know, my opinion. That's my opinion. And what happened is that they didn't go. And because they didn't go, it made such an impression on the other relatives that eventually the other relatives became Orthodox. Now, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen. <laughs> But this is an absolute true story. And it's all based on this Gomorrah, right? Without the Gomorrah, I would hesitate to say anything, because how do I know? But the Gomorrah says that for the preservation of the standards of family, it should be dealt with strongly. It should not be covered over. And even though it's an embarrassment, you know, imagine, you know, you go break a barrel of fruit in the middle of the street and you make such an announcement, you know. Not nice. But we are looking for an overriding value here. And the overriding value is the preservation of Jewish family and Jewish home. And improper marriages, halachically improper marriages are not the way to secure family or to secure Jewish survival. And Chazal therefore said, Oilo lepose lezaro ulepoge mesmishpachto. Woe to someone who through his behavior uh, makes his generations pasul, really meaning that he hurts their pedigree. And Lepogem is Mishpachto, and the entire family suffers thereby. We have a great Gemara that says, the Gemara asks, the, the Gemara was discussing uh, uh, the fact that uh, the Romans executed robbers, uh, smugglers, uh, people that did things illegally. And uh, so the Gemara asked, well, you know, the robber, the smuggler, he's got a coming to him. But why should the rest of the family suffer thereby? In other words, in God's system of justice, when the criminal is punished, so uh, let the criminal be punished. I mean, why does the mother have to suffer? You know, we see always that the, 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 the son is a murderer and the mother says he's a good boy. Because that's a mother. So why should it be that the family should suffer as well? The Gemara says a frightening thing. The Gemara says every family that has criminals in the family cover up for them. They cover up. So it's very hard to... Uh, you know, to go against your own flesh and blood. And it's very hard to look realistically at your own flesh and blood. And so what if he's a smuggler? 
But the Gemara says that since they cover up for him, so therefore they undermine the whole sense of rectitude that exists within the Jewish people, and therefore they are also part of the punishment. So we have here almost a collective guilt, not just the guilt of the criminal, of the person alone, but the guilt of everyone around, because we tolerate it. Uh, we could say that about our society here also. We tolerate a lot of things that we know are wrong, that we're embarrassed about. But uh, who wants to get mixed up? Who wants to say anything? But though we who tolerate it are also tarred by that brush. You know, we are also damaged by it. You know, we are, so to speak, part of the corruption also. And the Gemara is very, uh, very strong in this area. Makes very, very few allowances. Because of the fact that, again, this is the overriding value That's one side of the coin. Right? So one side of the coin is uncompromising, right? Now, you have the other side of the coin uh, to protect my family. Gemara says a case in the Dorim that a man comes before the Bezdin and he said, I, uh, I uh, pledge to become a Nozir to take the vows of Naziru to be, uh, uh, you know, to uh, not to shave for 30 days and not to drink wine and to be celibate and to stay away from all troubles. I take all of that upon myself on the condition that I will not reveal what I know about my family. I won't reveal what's wrong with my family. Now, the rule is that we go to all lengths to prevent people from becoming a Nazir. The Gemara says that uh, Shimon Atzadik, the great Kohen Godel, uh, never participated in the uh, sacrifice of a Nazir because he said, uh, isn't it not enough what the Torah forbade for you? You've got to make it more yet, right? The, the Torah said that... Uh, you know, uh, you can drink wine and you don't want to drink wine. The Torah said that you can you know, take a haircut and be uh, presentable and you want to be on camp. The Torah, therefore, he would not participate. Except there was one case. One case, he said, where he felt that the man was truly a Nazir and he took upon himself the vows of Nazirus in order to prevent himself from sinning. The Gemara says that he was uh, so handsome and that, that it was uh, like it was impossible for him to resist on his own the evil inclination. And therefore, in order to strengthen himself, he took upon himself the vows of Nazir. So that was the only time that Shimon Atzadik said he saw a legitimate Nazir. So our public policy is to be against the Nazir. Here comes a man before us. And we can get him out of being a Nazir. We just have to say, okay, so tell us what you want to tell us about your family. The Gemara says just the opposite. Let him be a Nazir. 
and let him not break the confidence of his family. So here you have an exact opposite of what we had before. Before, you know, you take a bushel of fruit and you're breaking it in the middle of the street and you're saying, you know, my brother so-and-so, he married a woman that he shouldn't have married when we said before that the, he's a smuggler, you know. And here the Gemara says that, well, don't reveal anything. So, uh, the Mephorshim discussed this, the commentators to the Talmud, that's discussed what to, how to reconcile, if it's reconcilable. Uh, but the general rule is, what will preserve the family? What is in the best interest of the family? So there are times that the best interest of the family is to make a whole tumult about it, and to reveal and to, and to make accusations, and that will save the family. And there are times that what saves the family is to be quiet about it. How do you know what to do when? So that we have no instruction book. Because that's true of most of the Torah. And most of the Talmud, certainly, we have conflicting ideas all the time. Different policies. So how do I know which policy I should follow? So if you're blessed with a great rabbi or a Hasidic mentor, uh, someone to ask, so then uh, their advice could be valuable. But even then, the decision is always ours. And that's really what makes life interesting, is because we're not certain that we have ever made the right decisions. The Talmud tells, that, tells us that regarding Joseph and his brothers. Now there's a family matter. Why did a brother sell Joseph? What's, what's got into them? They see him as a threat to the entire family. He speaks evil about them. Uh, he estranges them from their father. He invents stories about them. He's, he's a danger. The whole family will be destroyed by this... 17-year-old uh, teenager who, uh, you know, has no sense of proportion as to what's going on. And therefore they decide that in order to save the family, they have to destroy the brother. So, we all know the story. They sell him. 22, year late, 22 years later, they meet him. And at the end, he says to them, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef, I'm the one that you sold. So in the Gemara, it says that the brothers couldn't, the brothers were in shock. They were traumatized. They couldn't respond to him. So the Bali Musars say, the great men of the Muslim movement, they say what was part of their trauma, aside from the shock of seeing Yosef was that until now they had thought that they had done the right thing. Until now they were convinced that they had saved the family. And because they were convinced that they saved the family, they were willing to put up with Jacob's grief all the years, to see their father weep and weep, and they knew the truth and they never told it to him. 
because of the fact that they were going to save the family. They were going to save the future generations. Now, all of a sudden, he says, Ani Yosef, here I am, and you all got to come down here, and I'm going to save you, and bring my father down, and here's Binyamin, my brother. So then they realized that they made a mistake. Instead of saving the family, they almost destroyed the family. And therefore they were frightened. Uh, the Gemara says, Woe to us from the day of judgment. Because the brothers were going to come to heaven and say, We saved the family at all of this expense and pain and everything. But look, we saved our family. We have a mitzvah. And now the mitzvah turned into an avera. The positive turned into the negative. And the Torah purposely tells us that story to realize uh, that it's treacherous ground that we're on. It's not simple. There are many times in families where uh, there's a child that requires special needs. So many times in such families, the other children, but to a certain extent, are neglected because of it. How do you make such choices? How do you know what to do? Well, life is difficult. Family life is doubly difficult. But the overriding value here that Chazal emphasized is that a person has to do what is good for the family. Sometimes it's clear. Most times in life it is not clear. Most times it is confusing. And therefore... Uh, Counselors, uh, experts, uh, spiritual uh, leaders are necessary to help us. That we should have some sort of idea of uh, which side uh, this matter falls on. What we should do. The Ravoni Shalom, the Gemara says, is proud of the Jewish family because it has yichas. Uh, Yichus in its popular sense uh, means that uh, you're uh, descended from the Rothschilds or that uh, your grandfather was a great Rosh Hashiva or something like that. That's the uh, Rebbe, that's Yichus. But the Gemara doesn't, the Gemara is not talking about that kind of Yichus. Again, we're going to see here two opposites. I want you to leave this lecture thoroughly confused. <laughs> and I have the great ability to do so. So, Yichus in the Gemara means that there is no uh, illegal, non-halachic marriage in the family. That's what Yichus is. That's the bottom line of Yichus. And the Gemara says uh, the Kohanim, when they got married, would check back certain amount of generations. And the Gemara said that if there were certain presumptions regarding uh, a family, so then that was su sufficient. You didn't have to check anymore. But Yichus is important. And therefore the Gemara says that the Rabboni Shalom, so to speak, cho chose the Jewish people because we have a book of Yichus. And when the nations of the world came to complain that God is not fair 
in somehow choosing the Jewish people and dealing with them. So he said, Aviu lefonai sefer bring me your Yichus book. Well, the nations of the world, uh, the Yichus book is pretty uh, blotched. And that's why it says, Hovu Lashem Mishpachos Amim. Bring to God, show me your families. Show me your sense of families. And therefore, uh, Yichus became very important. The Gemara says, Ashkina Shore Rak al Mishpachos Miuchosos Yisrael. The Shechina descends only on Jewish families that have yichus, that do not have within their family improper marriages, improper relationships. And then the Gemara raises the ante. The Gemara is much in favor that when a man looks for a spouse, he should marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Laolam yimkor odam kol the Gemara says. A person should sell everything that he has. So it doesn't mean only to sell everything. It means he should overlook many things. V'yelech v'yisa bas Talmud Chochem. And he should go and marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Of a Torah scholar. Rashi there says a terribly practical reason. Rashi says because if he dies, she'll raise the children to be Jews. Others give more, uh, what shall I say, more attractive reasons. And she has uh, good manners, she saw Torah in her house, etc., etc. But Bas Talmud Chochem is, uh, is supreme. Right? The Gemara, by the way, has harsh things to say about people who marry for money. That's a Gemara that is famous by not being taught. And uh, the Gemara, by the way, uh, you know, uh, the Gemara is very hard-headed in these matters. The fact that our world is... uh, 180 degrees opposite from the Gemara doesn't change the Gemara. Doesn't change what the Gemara says, and doesn't change what, what what's right. So, Yichus is important. Well, I'll tell you a Gemara that, that that you know that to me always shocked me. The Gemara says. A person should always look, 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 look to come, 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 come into, 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 into a family of good, 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 good,
good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, good, What shall I say? More attractive reasons. And she has uh, good manners, she saw Torah in her house, etc., etc. But Bas Talmud Chochem is, uh, is supreme. Right? The Gemara, by the way, has harsh things to say about people who marry for money. That's a Gemara that is famous by not being taught. And uh, the, the Gemara, by the way, uh, you know, uh, the Gemara is very hard-headed in these matters. The fact that our world is uh, 180 degrees opposite from the Gemara doesn't change the Gemara. Doesn't change what the Gemara says, and doesn't change what, what what's right. So, Yichus is important. Well, I'll tell you a Gemara that, 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 you know, that to me always shocked me. The Gemara says, La'olam yidbak oramatsmo betovim. A person should always look, 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 Therefore, Yisro and his family, that's a recessive gene. The Gemara says that, that how did Avraham have Yishmoel? Because he had a father, Terach. And how did Yitzchok have Esau? Because he had a grandfather, great-grandfather, Terach. So it's a gene in you. And in, in Kabbalah they talk about the birur, about clearing out the genetics. Pushing the recessive genes out completely, so they don't exist. They, uh, when the Jewish people went out from Egypt, there was an Erev Rav that went out with them, whole mixture of people, and they were all were they all got swallowed into the Jewish people somehow, over the ages. 
So a lot of what you see in the Jewish people today is those are the genetics. That's part of the hesitation that exists regarding conversions. You know, we say mass conversions, right? You know, we got 300,000 non-Jewish Russians here in the country, you know, put them all into Teddy Stadium and we'll do it one, two, three and get it over with. Because they fight in the army, they're good guys, they're fine people, and they came here, and they speak Hebrew. So let's do it. But Jewish people have different sensitivities. Have a different different history, and therefore you have to be careful, and you have to be exact. There's no such thing as mass conversions. There's conversions of individual people uh, that are zocha to come under the shechina. And therefore, you have this. Uh, Wariness, so to speak, about yichus. I mean, today it's stretched beyond, uh, you know, like uh, what color tablecloth did I use or something. Right? That says no. That has nothing to do with the Talmud. That's just. It's, it's almost absurd. Now let's see the other side of the coin. After we made this point. The other side of the coin, Omar David Lifna Kodesh Borchu. David Amelech says to God, again, the Medrash puts it into David's mouth, puts this conversation in order to make the point. Ademosai heimisragzin olai viomrim lo posulu. They still say about me that I'm apostle because he came from Rus. And the, in the Torah it says, Lo yovo Ammonium Moavi, from someone from these two tribes, from Ammon and Moav, was not allowed to convert. So the, the Shmuel and his Bezdin were the ones that made the halacha that they said, Ammoni velo Ammonis. Moavi velo moavis. The males are not allowed. But that the females, the conversion is legitimate. So Rus is therefore a legitimate convert. And she becomes the wife of Boaz. And their great-grandson is David. But everybody in the street says he's postal. Because he comes from a Moabite woman. They don't care what the rabbis say that what. Amoni below Amoni. You know, the rabbis, they can do what they want, right? But we know better. So David says, how long do I have to take this? That they say that I'm apostle, that I'm of no value. If you'll think about it, it's a very fluky story. Boaz is in his 80s. She's a young woman. She's a Gioras. You know, Boaz is the head of the Sanhedrin. I mean, it would be the lead story in Yediot. Fluky story. And they say also that what? 
that I'm not worthy not only not to be the king, I'm not worthy to be a Jew. I'm not legitimate. So I say to you, God, listen to him. Afatem, I say to them, Lo bosem achios. Didn't Yaakov marry two sisters? How did he do that? The Af Tomor, Shalokho Yehuda, and how about the story of Yehuda and Tomor? Right, so that's not the first thing the Shatchan would tell, right? This story. So he says, if I'm possible, then everybody's possible. That's what he's saying. And in effect, what he's saying is that there is no family. That if you dig in long and hard enough, you're not going to find something. So therefore, leave it alone. Don't stir up, you know, don't pick up all the rocks. Because you never know what snake you're going to find under it. J.M. in the A.M., we still have the uh, final uh, five, six minutes of Rabbi Beryl Wine on the uh, issue of family from his Jewish Values series, and we hope to get to it uh, in the next few minutes here at J.M. in the A.M. News from Israel scheduled for 7 o'clock Eastern Time. Reminder that tomorrow at 8 a.m. I will have my uh, father's historic eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which always seems to be a uh, big hit this time of year. It was delivered on the 3rd of Av, so tomorrow on the 3rd of Av, which is the Shloshim day of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We will have it for you. Uh, Thursday on this... um, on this radio broadcast, I am told that uh, representatives of the OU will join us, and we will discuss what's happening Tuesday. Now, Tuesday morning, our recommendation is to be tuned in to us, because we have a Kinnis service on the air right here at JM in the AM. Uh, the rest of Tuesday is uh, taken care of by our colleagues at the OU, and we will discuss that on Thursday right here at JM. And reminder that there is a Mincha service on Tuesday, Tisha B'Av, one week from today at 2 p.m. Please bring your talis and tefillin. There will be a special guest speaker. The service led by Avi Weiss. It's for the 36th consecutive year, and it's happening across the street from the United Nations. First Avenue at 43rd Street in New York, starting at 2 p.m. We hope to see you there. It's always an inspiring gathering. Partly cloudy weather and a high temperature of 87 as the heat wave continues. Scattered thunderstorms tonight with a low 76. Scattered thunderstorms for tomorrow with a high temperature of 83. Yerushalayim is at 86. Tel Aviv and Haifa at 82. A lot at 95. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missoura are enjoying 67 degrees for wake-up time. And they're heading up to 84 for later on today. As the nine days are in full swing, as I uh, told a young uh, eight-year-old yesterday, it's the nine days. (laughs) Most people will uh, refrain from swimming, and for that reason, and that is reason enough why we have 90-degree weather (laughs) during the nine days. 75 right now in Jersey City as we say good morning at JM and the AM. You're tuned to America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, uh, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmandtheam.org. Uh, on this Tuesday, ready to move into our uh, news from Israel. Then we'll be joined by a, a special guest. 
and um, plenty more coming up. Don't forget our stream goes all day long with uh, nine days acapella selections starting at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern Time throughout the day. Our original programming uh, suspended for a few days. It will uh, return and completely be re-energized once the nine days have been completed. I want to thank our friends at Fumio Grill and Sushi in Livingston, New Jersey, who have uh, assigned a portion of every bill, uh, every check, during the nine days to JM and the AM. Just make sure to mention JM and the AM when you dine at Fumio's in Livingston, New Jersey. We get a portion for a nice summer contribution to our radio efforts here at JM and the AM, and we thank them for that. All right. Galit Sal in the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up. And uh, move on into hour number two and three of our broadcast. We will get to the conclusion of Rabbi Beryl Wine on the issue of family and then uh, continue through his series on Jewish values. Information about all that he has to offer, Jewish history, philosophy, and more, 1-800-499-WEIN. 1-800-499-WEIN. And go to the web, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Make sure to reference that you heard about it here on JM and the AM. And uh, I'm sure Rabbi Wine will be thrilled that we are using his amazing lectures as the centerpiece of our nine days programming. Golly, it's on the background. News from Israel is coming up next here at JM in the AM. As we uh, continue on the second day of the nine days in our nine days format. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Tuesday follows next. We say Boker Toe from JM in the AM. שלושה מסביב יש הרבה פיצוצים. בתוך שבמצב הזה הגבולות שלנו שקטים, זה לא מובן מאליו. מלחמת האזרחים בסוריה גלשה כבר מזמן ללבנון כתוצאה מהתערבות חיזבאללה בלחימה בסוריה. אנחנו רואים בתוך לבנון, כמו הדיווחים היום, על מכונית תופת שהתפתצה שם. זה מאבק בין נשים לסונים בעיקר. פרשת האסיר X2, השר יעקב פרי לשעבר ראש השב"כ, אומר ליעל דן, בתוכניתנו עושים צהריים, כי הוא סומך על דרך קבלת ההחלטות במערכת הביטחון. אין לי בכלל ספק שהשיקולים הם שיקולי ביטחון כבדי משקל. יכול להיות שלפעמים המערכת לא מגיעה מהר מספיק למסקנה שאפשר כבר אולי לפרסם, אבל הנימוקים הם נימוקים ביטחוניים, הם לא אמורים לכסות על שום פשלות. מקרים, אם 
ומה לאחר שפרופסור ירון זליכה קבע כי יש ריקבון ביסודות הכדורגל בישראל, משיב לו יושב ראש ההתאחדות לכדורגל אבי לוזון. מה שרקוב זה אצלו במוח. הכדורגל הישראלי מתנהל בשקיפות, במקצועיות, ברמה הגבוהה ביותר. אף אחד לא יוכל לבוא ולהטיל בנו רפש סתם. אנחנו נשמור על העצמאות של ההתאחדות לכדורגל מהיום ועוד מאה שנה. כתבנו אלדר גילרן מוסר כי על פי המלצות ועדת זליכה יש בין היתר לשנות את הליך בחירת יושב ראש ההתאחדות. ולסיום, שלמה הלל חוזר ללשכת יושב ראש הכנסת, חבר הכנסת האגדי ממפא"י חוגג 90, ולכבוד יום הולדתו נערך לכבודו כנס מחזור מיוחד שהיושב ראש הנוכחי אדלשטיין זימן את כל עובדי הלשכה מהתקופה של הלל. ריגש אותי שעדיין זוכרים אותי, נתראה שוב בעוד עשור. כך סיכם הלל את המפגש עד 120. אלה החדשות שעורך אילי לוין. J.M. and the A.M. It's Galei Tzal and uh, our news from Israel at the top of the hour. Uh, before we head back to our nine days format and uh, get to uh, more of our barrel wine, uh, I was made aware yesterday that our good friend uh, Aaron Bronstein, who many of you have heard, especially before the uh, big Simchus Torah celebration that he sponsors at the Westside Institutional Synagogue each year, uh, Aaron has uh, made a declaration that he's ready to run for city council in New York. And he's looking for signatures, and we thought we'd alert the folks in the uh, Upper West Side neighborhood that that is going on, and they could be of help. Aaron Bronstein, welcome to JM in the AM. Hey, Bokatov, uh, Nachum, <laughs> Bokatov, Israel, Bokatov, America. You're amazing, Aaron. Aaron Bronstein here. You are amazing. So what happened? When did you find out that this seat became available? Um, about two weeks ago, so uh, uptown here in New York, we had the same person, a wonderful woman, Gail Brewer, was our uh, council person for 12 years in the Upper West Side, and a wonderful woman. She's running for borough president, big fan of hers, but really no one ever did anything for uh, the Jewish community other than come to our dinner, show up at our Simchas Torah and make a speech. Um... Just for everyone's own head, New York City, New York State has millions of dollars to give to uh, synagogues, yeshivas, Jewish media, etc. But no one ever asks for it because, you know, apathy is the biggest sin in the Torah, in my opinion. All right, so Who's let's... sitting back and doing nothing? So let's get... I, I, I hate that. Seriously, right, don't so you know? I, I understand what you're saying, but let's get to what happened. All right, so, let's get right to the point. So they, they, right. they approached you, or was your idea? Yeah, I was approached, and the six other people running are first-timer rookies like myself. Right. You know, business people, mainly builders who want to build apartment buildings in Central Park and Riverside Park, etc. I'm not into that. I'm just, you know, a working person here. Raise my rent every year. No one says anything. No one does anything in general. And I'm, you know, you know me. I can't sit back. It's ridiculous. And I just saw the other day the movie Network. Remember that movie? Yeah. With Faye Dunaway and all that, Network. Oh, yeah. I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. Oh, Remember yeah. That? And the whole William city Holden was watching that, right? Back in 86. Uh-huh. So, you know, I got all my neighbors always... You know, moan and complain. Everyone in my show, the Westside Institution, moans and complains. And people are complacent. That's now, how, what they do. How many signatures do you need to actually get on this ballot? 
500. And how many do you have? 412. So what should people... I got my well, shul, WSIS. So, so what should people do? The Box shul and my building has helped. What should people but, do if they want to help out? Okay. All you got to do is sign a ballot in order for me to run. So I have till Thursday midnight to get the extra 100 signatures. So you're always challenged. The proper thing is to be a registered Democrat and live in the Upper West Side, or else the other people, you know, will try to make trouble, because maybe I could actually win. And my platform, lowering rent, senior citizens, I'm like 60 already, got it, the bicycle education. I'm a man of the street. Whatever my district tells me to do, I'm happy to listen to, and I'm available all the time. My telephone number, email, you could go uh, A-R-O-N-L-Y-O-N-N-E at A-O-L. My telephone, 646-386-7152. I got something funny. I know it's the nine days. We're all depressed, etc. So my daughter, Natasha Braunstein, a big movie star, gave me her word. If I'm on the ballot, she will bring young Hollywood to help campaign for me. To have a pretty good chance of winning. Why? The West Side is into Hollywood? No, my daughter, Natasha Leone, you know, has made 71 movies. No, I know, but I'm asking uh, if the Upper West Side folks are into Hollywood. Like, that would be influential no, I mean, to them? Everybody likes Broadway. You know, she's a Broadway producer now, has made nine plays. You know, very artsy, very pro Jewish. Um, her movie, The Gray Zone, she uh, checked out, you know, my in laws who were from Birkenau in the camps. And Birkenau had an uprising to burn down the crematorium. So Natasha uh, lost 30 pounds, went from 110 to 80, cut off all her hair to look like, you know, a person from the camps, and convinced all her friends who are not Jewish, Oscar winners, you know, to play uh, survivors in the camp. Yeah, she took so that. Natasha is very Jewish. She took that role. Jewish community. She took in the, Israel and Kasaria. So she will help out to get me the young vote in order to win. She took that so. role very seriously. All right, uh, any information line or just use your cell phone like no, you've just okay. given out? What I suggest is just uh, give everyone my telephone number. I'm here. 646-386-7152. I live at, give me everyone my address in New York, how's that? At 424 West End Ave, 81st and West End. I want to say something about Nachum. About a year and a half ago, we did a boxing match in Yankee Stadium. Um, Yuri Foreman, who's a religious Jew, okay, 160 pounds, fought Miguel Cotto, the champion of the world of Puerto Ricans. It was a rough night for you. was there with his yarmulke with his sons all wearing yarmulkes, with a very tough crowd. And you remember before the fight, we brought out a Satma Chassid blowing a shofar. Right, I remember. It was so a Satma? everyone know the meaning of a shofar? It was a Satma Chassid? Yes. I you remember was... his long white beard, Paius? I remember a Chassid. everything, right? Stromel. Does everyone here know the meaning of the blowing of the horn? Come on, we're going to be in Russia Hashanah momentarily. Yeah, two months. Well, it's besides being, you know... To do tshuva, King David, David Melech, who Hashem really liked, right? It was a war. Joshua bought, blew the, remember at the Battle of Jericho? Yeah. Blew the horn, the walls came tumbling down. So it's a battle cry. It's about time 
New York Jews stood up for themselves and did something. You see what's going on in Egypt and the Middle East? No one cares. Unless we protect ourselves, no one's going to do it, Nachum. What do you think? I think you have uh, always a very interesting agenda, to say the least. And this time, he's taking his agenda to the race for city council. Our good friend Aaron Braunstein who has been a colleague on radio and has been a great friend of this show for quite a while, is running for city council. Anybody who wants uh, any information, you can call him directly. He just gave out all his contact information live on the air. You can contact him directly. He's looking for enough signatures between now and Thursday night at midnight to actually get on the That's ballot. plenty of time, isn't it? Seriously. Yeah, for 100 so signatures. It'd be, it'd be a nice thing, okay? It'd be a good thing to get one of our own in there and straighten things out. Good luck, Aaron. Benefit. Good luck, Aaron. Thank you, Nachum. There he is, Aaron Broadstein, running for city council on the Upper West Side, assuming he can get those signatures, which should not be uh, too much of a challenge, knowing him, over the next 48 hours. Tuesday morning on this 9th of July and the 2nd of Av, we are concluding our election for Ibero Wine regarding family in his Jewish Values series right here at JM in the A. Legitimate. So I say to you, God, listen to him. Afatem, I say to them, Lo bosem achios. Didn't Yaakov marry two sisters? How did he do that? The Af Tomor, Shalokho Yehuda, and how about the story of Yehuda and Tomor? Right, so that's not the first thing the Shatchan would tell, right? This story. So he says, if I'm possible, then everybody's possible. That's what he's saying. And in effect, what he's saying is that there is no family. That if you dig in long and hard enough, you're not going to find something. So therefore, leave it alone. Don't stir up, you know, don't pick up all the rocks. Because you never know what snake you're going to find under it. Now, in Jewish history, there are all sorts of crazy stories that exist. But for instance, among the Iranian Jews, there was a town, Meshed, uh, that existed in Iran, that 300 years ago, the uh, Muslim rulers forced the Jews in the town to convert. But they did not convert to Islam sincerely. And uh, they remained as Jews, and then the decree fell off. But amongst the many, many Iranians, even until today, they won't marry anybody that came from that town. And that's hundreds of years ago. Or, in Poland there was a story of a woman whose husband was away for many years and somehow she became pregnant. And she said, Deus... Deus ex machina, the God did it, right? Came from God. An angel came, a, a shed, a spirit, right? And, you know, in the small Polish town, so, uh, you know, a lot of these stories went over. So there also, for hundreds of years, nobody would marry anybody from the town. Because maybe they got mixed up into that story. So Bedovid said, you know, if you want to start with me, I'll start with you, right? So how did Yaakov marry Rachel and Leah? And how did Yehuda marry Toma, right? You're worried about Boaz and Ruth, so let's go back. 
And then the Gemara says, even further, the Medrash says, Avram Avinu, Avram Omar, after the Akedah, so the Medrash says, Avram Avinu said, I have to marry off Yitzchak. So he calls in Eliezer, and he sends him to Padan Aram. But the Medrash says, before he sent him to Padan Aram, Omar, he said to Rabboni Shalom, I got women here. The Oner Eshkol and Mamre are my uh, friends. They're my converts. They're my students. They're holy and good people. They have daughters. I'll marry them off to my daughter. I'll marry Yitzchak off to their daughter. Why do I have to go somewhere else? Shehein Sitkonios, the Medrash says. They were pious women. But they had no yichas. Whereas Rivka had yichas because she came from Avram Avinu's family. She came from Nochor. So Avram says to God, What do I care about yuchsin for? Why, why, you know, you see this wonderful girl here? She's perfect. So Avram Avinu is willing. Uh, so God has to tell him, you know, you, you, the God doesn't deny what he says. God says, oh, we just got news that Rivka was born. Rivka is the one for you. That's the the one that's bashert for you. milka gamhi bonim Right? Rivka Rivka, the sister, also was born. So here you have the other side of the coin, right? If we look at the person. We don't look at the yichas. Navram says, what do I care about the Yichas? Let's see what the person is. So here again, you have two opposites. Again, what's the reconciliation here? Who's best for the family? Who will build the family here? Who will make the family whole? Who will see to it that the family will exist? So we see from all of this that the Talmud held that family was a role model. And family is the source of all education. That's the idea that of the article we read before. If there's no family, there's no education. So you send them to school, school is not the best place for education. Because I'll say... Uh, Parents should teach their children. That's the way it's supposed to be. And family is also purpose and future. The family uh, is the the entire uh, vista of life and of immortality. So we have seen, I hope, that family is this cardinal principle, this overriding value in Jewish life. It defines us as a people... And it gives us an ability uh, to survive over all odds because the strength of the home and the strength of the, of the family is truly the strength of all of Israel. I want to thank you for coming tonight. This J.M. in the A.M. and uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on family from his Jewish Values series. I apologize. We had a little bit of a uh, technical problem in the midst of that lecture, but... Uh Baruch Hashem, it worked out as we hoped it would. The um, the fourth part of the Jewish Values series from Mary Beryl Wine deals with Torah scholarship. 
the um, the series is entitled Jewish Values. Torah Scholarship is the lecture that we're next going to go to here at JM and the AM. Information, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com, or you could dial 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, for all the information on the thousands, and I mean that, thousands of lectures that are available from Rabbi Beryl Wine on so many different topics, most notably Jewish history, but uh, we decided to start on nine days format uh, yesterday with Jewish values. Why not? Always important to emphasize Jewish values. In this case, Torah scholarship at 20 minutes after 7 o'clock, Tuesday morning at JM in the AM. Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's lecture deals with uh, Limra Torah, Talmud Torah. Torah as a... Uh, central and overriding value in Jewish life. Now, uh, I am going to divide the lecture into a number of different sections because the rabbis view Talmud Torah as having uh, many different influences and purposes and reasons uh, in Jewish life. Uh, so the Gemara says that the purpose of studying, the purpose of Talmud Torah, of studying Torah, and especially Torah Shebal Peh, which to us is the Mishnah and the Talmud, is La Suke Shmatza Alibare that we should be able to arrive at the Halacha. We should be able to arrive to know what are the practices of Judaism. What is a Jew supposed to do? Part of Torah, we all know, is greatly theoretical. It's a stimulating thought. But the purpose that the rabbis placed upon it was that Torah would teach us uh, how to behave, what we're supposed to do. For instance, the Chafetz Chaim in his introduction to the Mishnah Brura, the third section, of the third volume of the Mishnah Brura, which is the monumental commentary uh, on uh, the on Orachayim, on the first four, of the four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, so the Chavetz Chaim says it's almost impossible to be to really be a uh, Sabbath observer or Shomer Shabbat if one doesn't know what the halachas are, if one doesn't know what the rules are, and especially such a matter as Shabbat, which is rather complicated and has many different offshoots from it. So therefore the study of Torah is necessary so that you can just be a Jew to know what to do. And the rabbis therefore said, Lo amhor There's someone who is ignorant uh, can never be pious. Because he doesn't know how to be pious. He doesn't know what the requirements are. He doesn't know what the Torah demands of him. And the rabbis stressed that over and over again. They said, Godel Talmud, great is study, Shemevi Lidei because study brings to behavior. It brings to action. It defines for us the Jewish way of life. And that's why the Rambam said, for instance, in his famous statement, the Rambam, when he wrote the Mishnah Torah, 
The Rambam said, anybody who has my book will need no other books. The Rambam said, you only needed two books, uh, the uh, Torah Shepiksav, the Tanakh, the Bible, and my book, the Mishnah Torah. Because in the Mishnah Torah is every halacha that is necessary. You can know how to be a Jew from the Mishnah Torah. Well, uh, he was a little bold in saying that uh, because of the fact that there has been no book that has spawned as many books as the Rambam's work, the Mishnah Torah. Last year in Israel alone, there were over 300 books published on the Rambam's book that needed no other books. So there have been uh, literally thousands of books written about it. But the idea of the Rambam is clear. The idea of the Rambam is that to be a Jew, you have to know, and therefore he's giving you the book that will give you knowledge. And that that's the primary purpose for the study of Torah, is to know what to do. To know how to be a Sabbath observer, to know what foods are... uh, kosher and what is not kosher to uh, to, to know the uh, the nuts and bolts the nitty gritty of Judaism now in Jewish life uh, there have been cycles uh, there was for a long time what we could call societal Judaism in which uh, people really weren't that knowledgeable but they did everything right because the society Uh, so to speak uh, buttressed them and instructed them that's the way it was in the shtetl in eastern Europe that's the way it was in the mellas of Morocco there was a Jewish society at the top of the Jewish society there was a top thin crust of great intellectual scholars and rabbis and teachers who set the tone for the community and then the community behaved according to that so people uh, saw what their neighbor did or they remembered what their father did and that was their practice even though they could not study uh, Talmud or the post-scheme at all that has changed in our time there was a famous article written by Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik here of the Hebrew University Rabbi Yoshebeir Soloveitchik's son and uh, about 10 years ago or maybe even longer he wrote a famous article in tradition it's been recopied many times in which he said that uh, we have seen over the past century and past half century really the great shift in Jewish life from a societal life to a book life in other words, uh, it's not anymore what my father did. It's I'm going to look it up and see what the Mishnah says, what the Chazonish says. I'm going to see what it says in the book. And that that is a fundamental sea change in Jewish life. Uh, part of it is brought about by the fact that our society has changed greatly as well. Uh, the... Uh, the secularization of Jewish society uh, has taken its toll but nevertheless even people who come from religious families of many many generations standing so whereas their father uh, did what his father did the son today uh, is not necessarily bound by that 
He's going to look it up in the book. The book many times does not coincide with the practice. And therefore, uh, it explains much of what goes on within the traditional Jewish world today and the changes that have existed. People say, but I remember 50 years ago that we did this and this and this. Well, that's all true. But today's generation does not want to hear what you did 50 years ago. They want to see what's written in the book. They're following a different agenda. And therefore, to them, the study of Torah, the book defines the practice. Whereas in previous generations, the practice alone defined the practice. So the first idea, therefore, in the study of Torah, is that Torah... Uh, tells us how to be Jewish. It gives us practical advice, instructions. It would be, uh, if, uh, you know, if, if you buy a complicated uh, electronic device, uh, you hope that somehow it comes with instructions that are somewhat understandable. It always gives me pause when the instructions in English and the instructions in German differ. But you hope that you have somehow, you know, some instructions, right? What do you do? Where do you plug it in? So it would be impossible that the Durbanu Shalom would grant us a Torah and hold us to this kind of standard of behavior, etc., without explaining to us what we're supposed to do. So therefore, the study of Torah becomes the instruction book. It tells us what to do. So that's a practical reason. You know, Jews don't like practical reasons. Doesn't uh, doesn't stir our intellect or our emotions. So therefore, there's a second area that has nothing to do with practicality. The second area is that the study of Torah is the primary mitzvah of the Torah itself. Having no practical effect and not meant to have any practical effect. The study of Torah itself is not a means. The first idea that I mentioned is that the study of Torah is a means. It's a means to the end of knowing what to do as a Jew. The second idea is that it is not the means, it's the end. That's it. Study of Torah, that's it. And... uh, that's based on uh, on the idea that the study of Torah supports the universe. I never would have made the heavens and the earth, God says, if it would not be for the fact that there's a Torah and people will study it. So without the study of Torah, the whole universe collapses. In the Lithuanian yeshivas, and that still exists today to a certain extent, in the Lithuanian yeshivas, therefore, they divided every day of the year into uh, a mishmar, into uh, shifts. Eight-hour shifts or six-hour shifts. And so that in the yeshiva, Torah was constantly learned. J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine on Torah Scholarship, 731 Tuesday morning on this 9th of July and 2nd of Av. 
Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read in Echa, For this our heart was ill, our eyes were dimmed. During this period of the three weeks, between Shivasa Betamuz and Tishabov, we mourn the destruction of the first and second Beis Amikdosh and the ensuing exile of the Jewish nation from the land of Israel. Our sages explain that the source of all of Klal Yisrael's transgressions are enrooted in two sins, the golden calf and the meraglim, the spies. Although at the time of Matan Torah, all of the impurities of Klal Yisrael, both spiritual and physical, were removed, when they sinned with the meraglim, the sin of the Cheta Egel was once more brought into account. Had they not transgressed with the sin of the spies, Klal Yisrael would have been able to enter Eretz Yisrael immediately. The Imre Noam notes that in fact these two Averas caused the destruction of the first and second temples. The Talmud in Yuma states that the first base of Mikdash was destroyed because of the transgression of Avodah Zarah, idol worship. This second base of Mikdash was destroyed because of the sin of Sinas Chinam, baseless hatred and Lashon Hara. This is the cry of the Navi and Echa, Alzeh. Alzeh is comprised of four letters, the Ayin, Lamed, Zion, and the Hay. It forms an acronym for Avodazara, the Ayin and the Zion, and for Lashon Hara, the Lamed and the Hay. The Zayar tells us in Parshas Pinchas that Yerushalayim is called the heart. Similarly, we find in Yeshayahu, Dabru Alev Yerushalayim, speak to the heart of Yerushalayim. The Ariya Kodesh calls these two months Enayim, both Tammuz and Av. On the 17th of Tammuz, because of the Cheto Egel, or the sin of the golden calf, the Luchos were broken. And because of the Chet Maraglim, the sin of the spies, which occurred on Tishabov, a day of weeping was set into motion for future generations. Perhaps the Ariya Kadosh was also alluding to using our eyes for introspection, that during this three-week period, we should do some soul-searching and see how we can further develop our relationship with the Rebona Shalom. These three weeks compels us to some deeper thinking. Three prophets use a Loshan Echa. Moshe said in Devarim, Echa Esalavadi, how can I alone carry all that you have? That was when Klal Yisrael were admits riches and luxury. Yeshayo saw Klal Yisrael in a reckless situation, and he said, Echa Hoysalazayna, how is it possible that she was wanton? Yermio saw them in their disgraced state. Echa Yoshvavodod. She sits in solitude. It is interesting to note that the word Echa has the same gematria, numerical value, as the word Ela, which is 36. Between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av, we fast a total of 36 hours. We pray that that unique light from the time of creation, which originally shone for only 36 hours and then was hidden, that it should be restored to us again in the schus of our tshuva and masim toivim. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. Back to Rabbi Wine on the lecture of Torah scholarship coming up. Rabbi Wine's lectures one eight hundred.
499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. A reminder that tonight in Muncie, New York, Yeshiva and Masifta Taravadas have an inspiring event for the nine days. It's called an evening of inspiration to benefit the Talmidim of the Yeshiva. Uh, Harav Yisrael Belsky will be speaking, and um, Harav Zalman Leib Hollander will give words of introductions. Words of introduction tonight. Mincha starts at 8 p.m. at base Medrash Zichron Yehuda Vachana, uh, to Kakiat Lane on the corner of Viola up in Muncie. Uh, information 718-941-8000, 718-941-8000. I'm sure many of our listeners are on their way to the Shema Kolenu 11th Annual Legislative Breakfast happening this morning at 8.15 at the Renaissance Ballroom in Brooklyn. Uh, Dr. Joshua Weinstein, founder and CEO of Shema Kolenu, will uh, deliver the welcoming address. Diana Williams of WABC-TV's Eyewitness News. Preston Niblack, City Council Finance Director. Brad Gerstman, co-founder of Gotham Government Relations. Chief Thomas Chan, NYPD, Chief of Community Affairs. Uh, Patty Lubin, Senior Advisor and Senior Counsel of the Office of Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Carolyn Gell Pfefferman, Senior Advisor in the Office of Senator Robert Menendez. Manhattan Borough President Scott Stringer, New York City Council Speaker Christine Quinn, former New York City Controller Bill Thompson, and uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Fleischer will all be among the um, honorees and presenters later this morning. Menachem Lubinsky and Kalman Yeager will serve as Masters of Ceremony. Uh, and that is the uh, Shema Kolenu 11th Annual Legislative Breakfast happening this morning in Brooklyn, New York. Greetings to those who are on their way as we speak. Project Witness has a nine days program entitled The Lens Reveals. The Catskills program will happen tomorrow night at 7.30 at the Folsburg Central School District on Brickman Road in Folsburg. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein and Mrs. Nachama Mursky, the Associate Principal of Shevach, We'll address the gathering. It's for women and girls. Information 718-WITNESS. That's 718-WITNESS. A reminder that tonight is the annual... Excuse me. A reminder that tomorrow night is the annual summer barbecue for Always Our Kids. An evening of inspiration and hope catered by world-class gourmet chef Rick. That is happening tomorrow night at 5004 Avenue M between Utica and East 51st Streets in Brooklyn, New York. There'll be a seum every hour starting at 7 p.m. Hamizamrim will be providing the a cappella entertainment. And uh, Ronnie Cohen and the organization are looking forward to greeting everybody. Uh, they are a, always our kids is a center, right, A-OK, always our kids, a center for boys who are lost in these trying times. Information at 917-750-7029, 917 7029. Hask presents an educational and inspiring evening for the entire community tonight, 8 p.m. at the Renaissance. Rabbi Pesach Krohn and Dr. Norman Blumenthal will be speaking at the Renaissance on understanding our children's fears, how to help your child overcome anxiety, effective tips, techniques, and strategies. It's for everybody tonight at the Renaissance on 14th Avenue in Brooklyn. Information, hask.net or 718-686-5900, 718-686-5900. And finally, the Ksiva Sefer Torah at the annual Shuvu Summer Dinner Meeting 
happens tonight at 7 p.m. at the home of the Weinbergers on East 23rd Street between Quentin and Avenue R in Brooklyn, New York. That's tonight at 7 p.m., the annual Shuvu Summer Dinner Meeting with the Ksiva Sefer Torah. And Harav Usher Weiss, Rosh Mostos Minchas Usher, noted Rav and Posek, is the guest speaker from Israel. There'll be valet parking, a video presentation. It's a men's event tonight, Tuesday, 7 p.m. at the Weinberger Home on East 23rd Street in Brooklyn, New York, for Shuvu. So that's some of what's happening, even during the nine days. As we know, there's lots of activities. A reminder that on Tisha B'Av itself, we will daven mincha at 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall, across the street from the United Nations. 2 o'clock are by Avi Weiss, and um, the entire Tisha B'Av committee invites you to participate in a very inspiring mincha service. Bring your talis and tefillin a week from today at 2 p.m. on 1st Avenue at 43rd Street in uh, New York City. And we look forward to seeing you there. Rabbi Beryl Wine from the Jewish Values series on the topic of Torah scholarship at JM and the AM. In the Lithuanian yeshivas, therefore, they divided every day of the year into uh, a mishmar, into uh, shifts. Eight-hour shifts or six-hour shifts. And so that in the yeshiva, Torah was constantly learned, constantly studied so that the world would be supported. So uh, my father told me that uh, many times, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, they had volunteers who, who wanted to do it Erev Yom Kippur, and who wanted to do it Yom Kippur night. The Gemara says on Rabbi Akiva, that Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva never had a Bein Azmanim, never had any vacation time, but that only twice a year did Rabbi Akiva say, we're going to close the book and go home and get ready. One was Erev Yom Kippur and one was Erev Pesach. So the only two times during the year. So there was this idea of constant, constant study without any interruption whatsoever. And uh, in Valozhin, which was the mother of all yeshivas in Eastern Europe, so that was sac- sacrosanct that the yeshiva always had people in the Beit HaMidrash studying Torah. And since uh, in those yeshivas uh, people didn't go home uh, for the holidays, etc., many of them were so poor they could not go home, and many for other reasons did not go home, so there always was a critical mass of students in the yeshiva, year-round, 365 days a year, and therefore Torah was constantly studied on the basis of this uh, of this idea if it were not for my covenant which is studied day and night I never would have made the world God says the world can't exist without the constant study of Torah now that uh, put, makes Torah as I said a uh, an end, the study of Torah is an end that's not a means to anything. Now you'll add to it that there's a higher concept that the Talmud brings to us. It's called Torah Lishma. Torah for the sake of studying Torah itself. So, uh, it's, you know, a person can study Torah because he wants to receive rabbinic ordination. A person can study Torah because he wants to uh, 
make a good match, right? People are looking for uh, their daughter to have a, big, a Talmud Chochem, so he wants to do it. Or he studies Torah because of all sorts of other reasons. But the rabbis emphasize that there's a concept called Torah Lishma, Torah just for the sake of Torah. And therefore the Gemara says many, many things which to us uh, don't resonate in our practical society. The Gemara says, for instance, Lo'olam ligras inish, a person should always study Torah, afal gav the mishkach, even though he's very forgetful, he can't remember at night what he learned during the day. That's why we have tape recordings of this lecture. Who's going to remember, right? The afal gav the lo yoda maikomar, the Gemara says, he doesn't understand what they're talking about. And uh, this was carried to an art form in Eastern Europe where uh, the rabbis uh, were on such a different level uh, than their parishioners uh, that most of the people never understood a word that the rabbi said. And uh, from that came the famous anecdote that uh, uh, about Revisal Kharif Weisel Slonimer, who was uh, the, one of the great uh, geniuses of Lithuanian Jewry in the 19th century, and he had a magnificent ability to take the most complicated subject and explain it so that even, you know, a piece of wood understood it at the end, what he was talking about. So when he came to say his inaugural uh, lecture in, uh, in Slonim, and so he spoke for two hours, and he took, uh, rabbis then had that liberty, uh, you know, and they, uh, they, uh, he took a very complicated subject, and he explained it brilliantly, and he explained it in such a way that everybody understood it. So the president of the congregation, the head of the Kehillah, came over to him afterwards. He said, Rabbi, I'm afraid you're not the man for us. Everybody understood you. So in effect, they prided themselves that nobody would understand what they're talking about. But they would all sit there for two hours, two and a half hours, and made no difference. Because of this Gemara, they're right. Even though they don't know what you're saying, but the, the mere participation in the Torah lecture being there and hearing it helps preserve the world. And so that is a completely different view of the study of Torah because of the fact that Torah has a purpose, a supernatural purpose. And the supernatural purpose is that by our study of Torah, uh, everything keeps on going. And we say that uh, the uh, the Torah it says, morning and night, day and night you will study Torah. The uh, Talmud brings us the story about Yoshua Binun in the middle of the war against the Canaanites. So the angel came to kill him. He sees an angel with a sword. He didn't realize it was an angel. He thought it was an enemy. He said to him, Whose side are you on? Identify yourself. And the angel said, I'm an angel of the Lord of hosts. 
Atobosi, I came now. And I'm going to kill you. So the Gemara says, what does Atobosi mean? He said, because Yeshua didn't learn that day. That day there was no Torah. And because there was no Torah, so therefore he was susceptible that the angel could come and overwhelm him. The angel did not kill him because that night it said, by Yolan, by Amek, that night he slept in the valley. So the rabbi said, by Yolan, that night he stayed in the valley of Torah, of Halacha, studied all night in order to protect himself from the Jewish people. So that's a... Uh, Again, that's Talmud Torah as an end in itself. And that's what the Mishnah says when it counts all the mitzvahs, and it always concludes with Talmud Torah Keneget Kulam. Talmud Torah outweighs all the mitzvahs. So if a person has a choice to do mitzvahs or to learn, he should learn. The Chafetz Chaim would say, that the Yetzirah will let a man do all the mitzvahs in the world except study Torah. When it comes to study Torah, there the Yetzirah, the Sultan stands up, gets on his hind legs, and he says, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. And that was and still is the philosophy of all of the yeshivas that exist in the world. And that's why all other things really don't count. And all other things they're not obligated in. It's not part of their obligation. Uh, Without entering into the uh, political ramifications and societal ramifications of the matter. But uh, that is the... uh, uh, that's the story with the army, that's the story with getting a job, that's the story with doing anything. They're not not obligated. Their obligations is to learn. And I need that. By sitting and learning, that is how the Jewish people are defended. They're not only defended, that's how the world goes round. If it wouldn't be for that, so then uh, there is no universe. The classic example of this is the story of Shem ben Yochoi and his son. Uh, the Romans, uh, Shem ben Yochoi uh, had a very negative opinion of the Romans. And he voiced it. And there was an informer who overheard what he said. And it was the Romans had spies in the base of Medrash. And he informed the Romans that uh, he, uh, that Shim ben Yochoi is agitating against them. And the Romans issued a death warrant to arrest him, to kill him. So he and his son, Rabbi Lozer ben Shimon, fled into the Judean desert. And they lived in the desert for 13 years. And they lived in a cave. And they lived off of carobs. There was a carob tree. Boxer. Fresh boxer is edible. In America, we used to get the dried boxer, which was absolute wood. But fresh boxer is edible. Fresh carobs. And he had a spring of water uh, that uh, miraculously flowed near the cave. And he stayed there for 13 years. In those circumstances, he and his son reached enormous spiritual heights. They studied Torah all the time. They didn't do anything else. So when he came out of the cave, I mean, the Talmud wants to show us this uh, 
paradigm. Uh, when he came out of the cave, so then he walked around and he saw that there are Jews that are farming. They're plowing and they're sowing and they're harvesting and there are Jews that are running stores and you saw the world the way it is. So he said to them, Manichin chaye olam vioskin b'chaye shor. You are forsaking eternal life in order to waste your time with what is only temporary. And the, uh, he railed against them to such an extent uh, that, uh, that he damaged them. So then the Talmud says, so a voice came out from heaven and said, did you come out of the cave to destroy my world? But, uh, you know, you're on a certain level, so you're there, right? But you leave these people alone. They're not on that level. But the Gemara says, nevertheless, that Shim ben Yochoi and his son, Rebbe Lezer ben Shimon, are the examples of what are called Toratam Umnatam. Their profession is the study of Torah. And we see that throughout the Talmud. We see that they didn't even stop to pray. The Gemara says that, you know, if it's Torosan Umnosan, then you only chayv kriyashma. So the rest of it is, you know, and that you see in the yeshivas today also. And that's part of the idea, you know, that everybody walks around with a book. People go to a wedding. People go, you know, they go visiting. And they come with a book and they sit and study. So on the surface, it looks to be rude. Especially since they don't offer to share the book with you. But that's a fulfillment of this idea of Torosa Mumnosa. This is their profession. This is what they do. This is what's involved. And so therefore, uh, the, it's an attempt to emulate the great Rabshim ben Yochoi and his son, Rabbi Elazar ben Shimon. So, we have here two ideas of Talmud Torah, which to a certain extent are, uh, if not contradictory, but they certainly are different. One sees Torah as a, the study of Torah as being a practical study, and the other sees it as being uh, impractical. It makes no difference. And the Gemara says many times, it's just, it doesn't make a difference whether you're studying, uh, you know, Hilcha Shabbos, or you're studying Nagoyim uh, and Oholos, which Bizman have no effect upon us whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. Torah, Torah is Torah, whatever you study. Third idea about the study of Torah is that Torah is the uh, cure or it's the inhibitor of our evil instinct. Torah can make us a better person. So again, it's a a different idea. It's not a matter of practical behavior in terms of to know what to do. And it's not a matter of supporting the universe, which uh, Torah Lishma does. But a person has a Yetzirah, a person has an evil instinct, a person has desires, 
and he finds it difficult to control the desires. So therefore, the Gemara says, Borosi Yetzahara, God says, I created a Yetzahara, Borosi Torah Tavlin Lo, I have created the Torah as the medicine for it, as the antidote for it. And the study of Torah is therefore a, uh, a moral act. It makes us a better person. Now we'll see how the Gomorrah qualifies that because sometimes you meet people that know a lot of Torah and uh, you won't necessarily go into business with them. So uh, the Gomorrah itself is aware of the uh, practical problems of saying carte blanche that Torah makes you a better person. But the Gomorrah therefore uh, moderates it. But the basic idea is that a person has the possibility of becoming better by studying Torah. So the Gemara says, Lolam yargi zodam yetzer tov al yetzer A person should always attempt to arouse his yetzer atov to do battle with the yetzer hara. In other words, a person should never give up on himself. He should never say, what's the use? Because that's the greatest weapon of the Yetzirah. The greatest weapon of evil is uh, passivity, uh, you know, uh, inertia. Can't do better. Can't be a better person. Just the way it is. I gave up on myself. The Torah doesn't allow us to give up on ourselves. That is the greatest cop. What do you mean? And the glory has all sorts of... Uh, of examples, are you poorer than Hillel? Are you richer than Rebbe? Are you handsomer than Yosef? You know, and we have all the time the uh, older people that uh, that came to greatness in their later years. Uh, yeah, what do you mean you gave up? Why did you give up? Who gave you the, who so to speak gave you the permission to give up? And that's generally the Jewish people they have to look at themselves that way, not only as individuals but as the Jewish people themselves as a people. So it would have been very easy for us to give up after the Holocaust. It would have been very easy for us to give up in many, many stages along the way. So, we have to always arouse our Yetzir HaTov to do battle with the Yetzir HaRah. If you're able to conquer it that way, good, you did it. But if however that doesn't work, you are unable to control the Yetzirah. So the Gemara says, Yasok ba Torah. Then make Torah your business. Study Torah. The studying Torah will help you in mobilizing your Yetzir HaTov to overcome the Yetzirah. Now, what about the problem that we raised that it's not necessarily so? And we'll see the Gemara itself recognizes that. So the Gemara says, we have to understand that Torah is not acquired easily. There are no shortcuts. And therefore, Torah niknis yisurin. There are things in life that one obtains, one achieves only through yisurin, through pain, through tests, through difficulties. 
So Eretz Yisrael is one, the Gemara says. Eretz Yisrael, Niknas Adyei Yisurim. So it's not only, uh, we're going to have a whole lecture about Eretz Yisrael, so I don't want to dwell on it tonight, but we can understand that, right? That Eretz Yisrael is painful. Right? It's not like... Uh, it's not South Dakota. It's painful. Torah also is painful. Torah requires effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires time. It requires concentration. And it requires the fact that you have to give up on other things in order to acquire Torah. It's not easily acquired. So therefore, the Gemara says, easy Torah will not help you. Hard Torah will help you. Now in our time, because of the fact that we have... the decline in the generation so we made it easier for, to get Torah right there are wonderful tape series available there are uh, uh, books available there's an English Talmud that is marvelous that never was available before now all of these things have raised objections among certain uh, people and factions in the Torah world because they say you made it too easy you have to make it hard. And that by making it easy, uh, you lose this advantage. Well, uh, the problem with that is that uh, if the choice is to have this kind of Torah or to have no Torah, it certainly is better to have this kind of Torah. If the only way I can study Talmud is with the uh, Schottenstein Talmud, then I'm going to study it with the Schottenstein Talmud. JM in the AM is Rabbi Beryl Wine on Torah Scholarship from his Jewish Values series, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web at jmtheam.org. Uh, I want to remind uh, mental health school and other professionals who work with children and or parents that the uh, DA of Brooklyn, New York, has joined with the uh, Project Cold Sedek for an important discussion on mandated reporting, understanding who is a mandated reporter, what must get called in, what happens next, who will be involved, and more. Uh, come here, uh, Charles J. Hines, King County District Attorney, uh, Ronnie Jouse, um, Chief Sex Crimes and Crimes Against Children Division, Gina Dakamalis, Senior Director of the Brooklyn Child Advocacy Center, Kelly Casey, First Deputy Bureau Chief of the Kings County DA's Office, and Louise Cohen, Executive Assistant District Attorney for the Sex Crimes Bureau of Kings County District Attorney's Office. It's all happening this Thursday, starting at 9.30 in the morning until 12 noon at 350 J Street on the 19th floor. You must respond, 718 250 2045 718-250-2045. It's appropriate for all mental health school and other professionals working with children and or parents. Tonight, Hask presents an educational and inspiring evening for the entire community, understanding our children's fears, how to help your child overcome anxiety, effective tips, techniques, and strategies, featuring our Pesach Krohn and Dr. Norman Blumenthal. That's tonight at 8 p.m. at the Renaissance, 5900 14th Avenue in Brooklyn. Everybody's invited. Go to hask.net or dial 718-686-5900, 718-686-5900. And our trip to Hask 
uh, is going to be the day after Tisha B'Av. We'll be recording Thursday's JM and the AM on the 17th of July. And we are looking forward to that journey up to Parksville, New York. Three minutes after uh, 8 o'clock as we continue with Harry Barrel Wine, his series on the uh, topic of Jewish values, this specific lecture on Torah scholarship here at JM in the AM. Torah also is painful. Torah requires effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires time. It requires concentration. And it requires the fact that you have to give up on other things in order to acquire Torah not easily acquired. So therefore, the Gemara says, easy Torah will not help you. Hard Torah will help you. Now in our time, because of the fact that we have uh, the decline in the generation, so we made it easier to get Torah, right? There are wonderful tape series available. There are... uh, uh, books available there's an English Talmud that's just marvelous that never was available before now all of these things have raised objections among certain uh, people and factions in the Torah world because they say you made it too easy you have to make it hard and that by making it easy uh, you lose this advantage well, uh, the problem with that is that uh, if the choice is to have this kind of Torah or to have no Torah, it certainly is better to have this kind of Torah. If the only way I can study Talmud is with the uh, Schottenstein Talmud, then I'm going to study it with the Schottenstein Talmud. And if you look through Jewish history, almost every time that anything came into being, there was opposition. When Rashi, for instance, made his commentary to the Talmud, there are those that said, you know, that's no good, right? You're supposed to loan the Talmud. What do you know? He comes along and explains it all to you. And the Marshal complained later in the 16th century, every time that there has been anything that has made it, so to speak, easier, it's been only begrudgingly accepted. The, uh, as the generations uh, decline, as we go farther from Sinai, as the problems of society increase, as the pressures upon us increase, so naturally we need all of these aids because otherwise we wouldn't be able to do it. The Gemara Darshan's on the Posik in Parshas Chukas, it says, Zosa Torah, Odom Kiyomus Bohel. This is the law regarding if a person dies in the tent. So the law describes the, the, uh, the ritual of cleanliness and uncleanliness of Tuma and Tahara, etc. The Gemara takes that posseg out of context and says as follows. Zosa Torah, Odom Kiyomus Bo'el. This is the Torah. Eina Torah Miskayemus. The Torah has no chance to exist. Somebody who's willing to kill himself, so to speak, in the tent of Torah. Somebody who's willing to work at it. And therefore, uh, that was uh, one of the primary things in the yeshiva, in all yeshivas, was the person that was willing to work at it at all sacrifice. The great masmid who spent uh, many, many hours in the study of Torah depriving himself 
So in Europe, uh, there were mass meetings that studied 18, 19, 20 hours a day. And to stay awake at night, they would put their feet in cold water. They would stand. So, he's willing to die in the tent of Torah. The Gemara gives medicine advice. Choshberosho, person has headaches, migraines, yasok batorah, let him learn Torah, his headaches will go away. The Revelt says to get a bigger headache from the Torah, so therefore the other headaches won't disturb him anymore. The Gemara says, in order for the Torah to have value for a person, that it should help him against the Yitzhah he has to be a person that does not speak Loshon Horah. That does not speak slanderous speech. The Gemara says, B'nai Yehuda, she'ikpidu alishonam, in the time of the Talmud, in the time of the Mishnah rather, those who lived in Yehuda, in the southern part of the land of Israel, so they were careful in their speech. They were very careful not to say things that were improper according to Jewish law. So therefore, Niskaimo Torosom Biodom. So therefore, they became great in Torah, and the Torah that they said, they were able to retain. B'nai Galil, the Jews who lived in the Galilee, Shalo Hikpidu Alishonam, that they had loose tongues, they were not careful as to what they said. So lo niskaima Torosom Biodom. Their Torah evaporated. So therefore, uh, Torah is a moral force for you, but it needs a preface. And the preface is that first you have to control your tongue. If you control your tongue, then the Torah will help you control all the other things. The Gemara also says the person has to be humble. A Torah scholar has to be humble. Now the uh, tendency of scholars is not to be humble. Because that's why he's a scholar. I know so much more than you know than than the people that I'm talking to. So therefore, you know, look at me. So that's why the Gemara has Moshe Rabbeinu, or the Torah itself has Moshe Rabbeinu as the paradigm of the great scholar and teacher. Because Oish Moshe Onav Meod Adoma. Moshe is the most humble of all people. Moshe has no titles, not a Rav Agon, a Tzadik, you know, the plain old Moshe. Because only in humility do we find that the Torah rests. And therefore the rabbis equated that with the verse that says, Loba Shomayim He, the Torah is not in heaven. So uh, there are many interpretations of that. But one interpretation is the Torah is not by the highfalutin people, the people who have their heads in heaven, who think so much of themselves, who think they know everything. So therefore the custom was amongst Jews, amongst Jewish scholars, uh, that in order to humble themselves, uh, they would uh, sign their letters... Anochi Akotam. I, the small person. Right. But then it became like so de rigueur that everybody signed Anochi Akotam 
So the story is told that somebody once sent the Chassam Sofer a letter, and the person, uh, the Chassam Sofer, did not have a high opinion of the person's scholarship. And the man signed it, Anochi Akota. So the Chassam Sofer said, Oh, he also thinks he's a Kota. Right. So it's a reverse uh, humility also. But true humility is necessary for Torah. In order for the Torah to operate against the Sahara, the person has to raise himself to the level uh, that somehow he doesn't think so highly of himself. And therefore the Torah says, that the Gemara says, Divrei Torah koshin liknosam kiklei zov. To acquire Torah is expensive as to buy golden plates. But v'noach li'abdon kiklei zchuchis. But Torah is so fragile, it's as easy to lose it as the most fragile crystal. Get, just touch it wrong and it gets nicked. So Torah therefore has, uh, it's an elusive thing, it's trying to hold mercury, quicksilver in your hands. And in order to do so, therefore, again, you have to be the container. And the Gemara says the famous uh, 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 idea, it says, This is the Torah that Moshe placed. So the Gemara takes away the word sum and substitutes for it the word sam. Sam is an elixir, it's a mixture, it's a medicine. The Gemara says, Zocha, if a person is fortunate enough and meritorious enough, Naselo Sam Chayim, then it's the elixir of life, Torah. Lo Zocha, if he is not, has no merits, Naselo Sam Amovis, then it's poison. The rabbis therefore said not to teach Torah to a Talmud Sheino Hogun, to students who are not proper, who, uh, who don't behave properly, who'll turn out to be bad, because you make them worse. Because now they think they know Torah. And therefore it became a, uh, a uh, very sensitive thing, uh, this idea of... Uh, who to teach Torah to, what kind of person. It happens many times. Anybody who's in education knows the difficulty. Of, uh, sometimes you have a student that you just can't do it. So you have to send them away. So most of the time, the student never appreciates the favor that you did. But sometimes you have once in a while student that really appreciates it and he comes back 10 or 15 or 20 years later and says, Rebbe, you were right and you saved me and that turned me around the fact that you threw me out of my ear. But that also is part of this idea that Torah is uh, the building of moral character and, and, to, and if you don't want to build your moral character, right? So then it becomes poison instead of becoming a... Uh, an elixir of life. Now, this idea, therefore, uh, means that uh, you don't necessarily have to spend your whole life studying Torah. Not like in the second idea. The Gemara tells us, Bochi Rebbe Elezer. Rebbe Elezer wept. 
before his uh, before his death he wept. Omar lo Rabbi Yoshua. So Rabbi Yoshua, who is his colleague and companion in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, said to him, Amai kobochis, what is there to weep about? Imishum Torah, you're weeping because of the fact that you did not accomplish everything that you wanted in the study of Torah. Halo shoninu, did not, did we not learn? Echor amarbev, echor amamit. There are those that learn more, and there are those that learn less. Bilvad As long as his intent was pure, that he intended it for the sake of heaven, and Torah will protect him in this world and in the next. There's a piece in the Chofetz Chaim, in the, in the, in the uh, Shmir Saloshim rather, that the Chofetz Chaim writes that uh, people should learn Torah an hour, two hours a day, and that they should work the rest of the time. He said the elite should be held to the standard of learning a lot of Torah. But for everyone, for the masses, they never intended that what that everyone should be all day studying Torah. So therefore, according to this idea, right, so the the study of Torah is for you a protection, it's a medicine for you. And the rabbis warned us, meaning woe to the scholars, that they study Torah, but they really have no fear of heaven. So I, uh, I've often mentioned that when I was a rabbi in Miami Beach, somebody gave me a book, a hilarious book written by an Episcopalian bishop. And it, the title of the book is How to Be a Bishop Without Being Religious. And... Uh, you know, you just have to change a little, and it's us, right? It's the same, right? It's the same thing. So, you know, the story is told, the apocryphal story, but just to illustrate the point, is that two rabbis were leaving the rabbinic convention after five days of uh, scholarship and heated debate and everything, and one's to the, one turns to the other and says, but Shloimi, what if there is a God? <laughs> So that's what the uh, that, so that's what it said. Woe to the Tamir right? So then it becomes purely intellectual exercise. And that we are not interested in. That's not the purpose. That's part of the criticism of uh, what is today the scientific study of Talmud, which exists in Judaic study programs around the world and in universities is that the study of Talmud it does not presuppose any Yerushalayim. It's like studying Lahavdul Shakespeare or Chaucer. And so therefore, in the traditional view of the matter, that's not it. That it never will be it. And therefore, it, uh, its value is very, very minimal, no matter how many reams of scholarship no matter how many books are written, no matter how many degrees are granted. Fourth idea about the study of Torah is that Torah binds the generations. Torah is the means by which the generations of the Jewish people 
parents, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren have something in common. Because otherwise, we really don't have anything in common. My father, a blessed memory, so uh, he lived with my son, with his grandson, and with my son's children, who were his great-grandchildren. So my father was born before the Wright brothers flew an airplane. And my... uh, and my grandchildren, his great-grandchildren are, uh, you know, any, uh, any uh, pocket phone, you know, any cellular phone, they can do anything on it. Uh, they, you know, the computer, they're computer literate at four years old, they can do anything. My father is afraid of the machine. That's his daughter-in-law. Right. Never turns it on, Right. So what does my father have in common with that child? So you know what my father had in common? He taught them all olive base. He sat down, he taught them all olive base. He taught them the Hebrew alphabet, and then he taught them how to daven, he taught them towards Ibalonu Moshe, and then he taught them the first Mishnah. So that bound them together. And that gave them a relationship. And you were able to span... Uh, you know, the uh, four generations in between. So that's what Torah does. The Chazal say, therefore, when a child learns to speak, his father is obligated to teach him Torah right away. Well, you know, his kid's two years old. Torah Mahi, what Torah should he teach him? Torah Chivalon Moshe Maroshakilas Yaakov, the Gemara says. Teach him that Posik. And the Beforshim say, not only teach him that Posik, teach him the concept that there's a Torah in the world. That Torah Chivalon Moshe. Moshe commanded us, explained to us a Torah. And that will bind you together. And that will be a bond between generations. And the Gemara says, even though. The child doesn't understand one word you're talking about. He's a parrot. So you know, children many times before they read, you know, but if you read the story to them enough times, they memorize it. They know the story. So they pretend they read it, even though they don't read it. So here also, even though the child is not ready, right? Tell him, teach him. Because that will be the bond between the generations. And that's why it says in the Talmud, The words of Torah are poor in one place, but they're wealthy in another place. So the simple explanation of the Talmud is that regarding one subject of the Torah, these words really don't teach us anything. But regarding another subject that we're going to get to later, you'll see that it will be of value. But the rabbis also said that this goes on the generations, right? When you teach the child, it's aniyim, it's poor, right? The child doesn't understand what you're talking about. But it'll be ashirim b'mokam acher, 40 years later, it'll be rich for him. He'll have a memory of you. So I, you know, I still, uh, I still taste in my mouth the piece of lump sugar that my Zeta put in my mouth when I sat on his lap and he taught me Chumash and Rashi. I was maybe five years old. 
and uh, if I got the Rashi correct, so he shoved this piece of cube sugar in my mouth, you know, which was the ultimate Lithuanian reward in the world. So I can still taste it. So that's my bond. That's my connection. And Chazal say, therefore, Kol HaMalamed has been Torah. He who teaches his children Torah. Malolov HaKosov, the Posik states about him, Ki'ilu Lomdolo, as he taught it to his son, Livno, to his grandson, Leven Beno, to his great-grandson, Adsov Koladoras, to the end of all generations. It's all on your credit. And then the Gemara says, Kilo Kiblo Maharsinai. That a child, that's Mamad Harsinai. That's standing at Sinai and hearing the Torah for the first time, because that's his first experience with Torah. So when his father teaches him Torah, so then that becomes the Mamad Harsinai, that becomes the moment of Sinai. And the Gemara also says a rule. That a Torah machzeres alachsanya shalod. The Torah comes back to its in. We have a we have a uh, trait, not a halacha, but a trait that the Gemara learns from our father Avraham Avinu. That if one uh, regularly stays at a certain inn or a certain hotel, so let's say when he starts out in the world, it's only four stars, and then he makes it big. So and then he goes to five stars, he goes to six stars, he takes a suite, he rents a, a, a townhouse on the beach. The Gemara says you should go back to the same inn that you started with. You should always go with the Limda Torah Derech The Torah taught us good manners. That if this is the hotel that you stayed in and it was good enough then, so it's good enough now too. Now the Gemara takes that and says... That that's a rule by Torah too. A Torah machzeres The Torah always comes back to its in. It's meaning to the same families that treasure Torah, that supported Torah. So then the Torah comes knocking. So some generations don't open the door, but then there'll come another generation. The Torah will come back, and it will open the door. We're living witness to it in our time. How. Uh, uh, generations of Jews that have been estranged from Torah and all of a sudden there comes a generation that uh, that's more than willing to learn and does learn and accepts Torah and so the Torah keeps on coming it knocks at the door and that was the concept that the rabbis had that that's what binds the generations together and therefore that's a great purpose of Torah fifth purpose of Torah is the honor of Talmidei Chachamim is that the people who study Torah also have a great uh, they're the representatives of Torah so therefore the uh, Rava said in the Talmud that people are foolish he said that when you open the ark so everybody stands up for the Torah and when you carry the Torah everybody runs over to kiss it so he said People, so he says the Torah is a piece of parchment. And that they don't stand up for a Talmud Chochem, for a living human being, for someone who studies Torah. So he said, Hanayim Tapshoi, foolish people. 
that they don't appreciate what a Talmud Chochem is. And the Gemara therefore cuts Talmud Chachomim a lot of slack, a lot of leeway. There's a famous Gemara about Rabbi Lozer ben Shimon. So he met a man in the street. The man in the street was uh, a very ugly person, the Gemara says. How ugly he is. So Rabbi Lozer ben Shimon, uh, in a, uh, a loud whisper, remarked how ugly that man is. So the man came over to him and he said, why do you complain to about me? Why don't you go to the manufacturer and ask him why he made such an ugly person? So Rabbi Lozer, Rabbi Shimon felt very badly, and he apologized. The man said, I don't accept your apology. He met him again, and he asked for uh, the, that he, uh, he apologized, and he asked to be forgiven again, he, he refused. So then the rabbi of that town said to him, Forgive him, even though he's wrong, because of the fact that he's a great Talmud Chacham. So we have to cut a, uh, a little leeway, a little uh, slack for people of Torah. Now, you even have an ambivalence about Talmidei Chachomim who have left the fold, like Acher, like Elisha ben Avuya. So the rabbis wanted to have nothing to do with him, Reb Meir nurtured him because he was a great Talmud Chacham. So you have this ambivalence because of the fact that the Torah somehow uh, demands that we give honor to Talmud Chacham. And Torah is the great leveler. Poor Izaru Ayinim Shemem takes a Torah, Geirim, converts, all sorts of people can be great in Torah. The Gemara, in fact, says, how come that so many Talmidei Chachomim have children who are not Talmidei Chachomim? Why should that happen? So the Gemara says that the people shouldn't say that being a Talmud Chacham is a matter of heritage. A Yerusha. The Gemara gives a second heritage because Talmidei Chachomim many times are too haughty. As I mentioned before. So God humbles them because He gives them a child that isn't. We're well aware of such stories. But it's not it's not a uh, an inheritance. It has to be gained in every generation and everybody has the right to do so. Finally, the sixth idea is that Torah is the great protector of a person in this world and in the world to come. The Gemara says, Torah is a protector, Megino ala odom, bein bidi itna di osig bey, bein bidna di osig bey, while he's learning or while he's not learning. If he once learned, it protects him. Bein magna umelta, Torah the Torah protects him and saves him. And therefore the Gemara says, a person should always study Torah in one's youth, so it will protect him through his life. And the Gemara says it will also give him something to do when he gets older. So then, you know, then you can join a kolel, you can do, then you have time for Torah already. But a person that never studied Torah, so they will find it uh, difficult to adjust. There are only so many days a year you can go fishing. And because of that, therefore, 
Torah is seen as a protection for the person. Finally, the protection of the Torah is that it weakens a person. It weakens his Yetzirah. The Torah takes something out of us. So if it takes something out of us, so then we're too tired to do things that are wrong. We're, it, it, the opportunity is not as uh, great as uh, one would think that it should be. And therefore we're able to avoid uh, many, many problems because of that. And therefore we see here different facets of the great mitzvah of Talmud Torah, different purposes. But Talmud Torah is one of the great values upon which the Jewish nation exists. It's a primary value. It overweighs many, many other things. And within the Torah is described to us, It's our life and the length of our days. And therefore, Therefore, night and day, it deserves our study and our support as well. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi. J.M. and the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine from the Jewish Values Series. Uh, that one on Torah Scholarship coming up next, the Land of Israel here at J.M. and the A.M. at 28 minutes before 9 o'clock. It's Tuesday. Thank you for joining us. Tomorrow morning in the 8 o'clock hour, I will present uh, my father's uh, Shloshim eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which has become a uh, an international hit. And uh, tomorrow is the 3rd of Av. It was originally delivered on Shloshim, the 3rd of Av, 19 years ago. And we'll have that for you tomorrow morning at uh, 8 o'clock right here at JM and We'll interrupt our lectures brought by Beryl Wine. So you'll be able to hear that tomorrow. We look forward to bringing that to you. Shuvu presents their Ksiva Sefer Torah and their summer dinner meeting tonight at 7 p.m. at the Weinberger Home, uh, East 23rd Street between Quentin and Avenue R in Brooklyn, New York. Harav Usher Weiss will be the guest speaker. Information contact Shuvu. That happens tonight. Hask presents an educational and inspiring evening for the entire community. Rabbi Pesach Krohn and Dr. Norman Blumenthal on understanding our children's fears, how to help your child overcome anxiety with tips, techniques, and strategies. That's tonight at 8 p.m. at the Renaissance on 14th Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. Hask.net for information. H-A-S-C.net or 718-686. 5900-718-686-5900. A-OK, Always Our Kids, Annual Summer Barbecue with world-class gourmet chef Rick happening tomorrow night at 5004 Avenue M between Utica and East 51st Street in Brooklyn, New York. There'll be a see-em every hour starting at 7 p.m. in entertainment uh, a cappella style with Hamazamrim. Information at 917 750 7029-917-750-7029. The Catskills program by Project Witness, their nine days program entitled The Lens Reveals, the unsung heroes of the Warsaw Ghetto, an original documentary film, happens tomorrow night at 7.30 at the Folsberg Central School District on Brickman Road in Folsberg, New York. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein and Mrs. Nechama Mursky will both present 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS, for information. Jam in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Jewish Values Series, this is the lecture on the land of Israel. Tonight's uh, topic uh, deals with 
Eretz Yisrael as a value. Now, and I'm talking as a uh, political statement or as an idea of uh, Jewish nationalism, but as a religious value, because this entire series deals with values, and the value of Eretz Yisrael as uh, an idea uh, is one of the most supreme values in all of Torah and all of the Jewish people. I read an article uh, before Yom Yushalayim written by the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shor Yashuv Cohen, uh, who uh, the thrust of the article uh, was a remembrance of his experiences in Yerushalayim. He was captured in the 1948 war. He spent nine months in the Jordanian prison camp, lost part of his leg. Uh, and he writes about his experiences uh, regarding Yerushalayim over the past 57 years. But one of the things that he pointed out is, uh, and he said it very clearly, he said that Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, is meant to be a conduit, is meant to be a means to achieve Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. And in other words, that the state and our nationalism and everything that we have accomplished, that's not the end, that's only the means. And the means, uh, he quotes naturally from his father, the Nazir, and uh, from Rav Kook, uh, that the physical rebuilding of the Jewish people is a necessary prerequisite for the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people. But it is not... The end, the end is that spiritual rebuilding, as he calls it, it's the rebuilding of Eretz Israel, and not just of Medina Israel. So we speak about Eretz Israel here as a value, as one of the ideas uh, that has been constant throughout Jewish history. And it's been constant, it's interesting whether the Jewish people were here in the land of Israel, or whether they were in the diaspora, in the exile. Because uh, we see in the Nevi'im, uh, the Nevi'im always speak about how does Eretz Yisrael react uh, to the behavior of the people who live there. As though Eretz Yisrael is a living thing, it's not a passive piece of land, but it's a living organism. And this living organism reacts to what happens on it, around it, through it, and that that's the value, uh, that's the idea of what Eretz Yisrael represents. Now, the Jewish people spent most of their history outside the land of Israel. Uh, we're a people that are uh, 33, over 3,300 years old from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and most of the time we have not been here. And whenever we have been here, uh, it has not been sweetness and light. There were periods, good periods, the period of David HaMelech, the period of Shlomo HaMelech, 80 years. Then it started to fall apart. Uh, in the time of uh, the second temple, the period of the Hashmanoim, so the first hundred years, 
uh, was a good time and then it fell apart. And it's been a difficult, difficult situation always regarding living in the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because we are trying to translate a spiritual value into an everyday life, into a state that has to function, into all of the problems of everyday living. It's much easier to deal with it as an imaginary thing because then you never have any disappointments and you don't have to worry about it and you don't have to collect taxes and you don't have the, the whole problem. But how do we make it work practically? Uh, that is a major challenge, and that challenge has faced the Jewish people every time they've been here in the land of Israel. So we find that uh, during the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, so during the time of Yoshua, the Jewish people still were afraid of Yoshua because they still were afraid of Moshe. Moshe had such a lasting influence upon them that as long as Yoshua was here, they still thought that Moshe was here. But when Yoshua died, so then Vayibi Shvota Shoftim, we read now in the Megillah of Ruth. Shvota uh, Shoftim Rashi says the judges were judged. The Jewish people said, in effect, Miata, who are you to tell me to do anything? Everybody did whatever they wanted to. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos falls apart. So then God has to remind them that they're Jews, right? So he sends the Plishtim, he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Knanim. All sorts of problems. And it takes time until David HaMelech comes on the scene uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated. Now it becomes livable. And uh, during the last years of David, the last 20 years of David, and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo HaMelech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build the temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And Shlomo wanders away, and then there's a rebellion, and Yerovim ben Nevot, and then they split into two kingdoms, and then they become idolaters and pagans, and that's the story. So because of that, Eretz Yisrael is the most sensitive topic to discuss. And I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss, because I'm well aware that whatever one says... Uh, can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation and also because it's so sensitive because we're living here and we're part of it and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Yisrael the Gemara says Gimel Matonos Nosan HaKadosh Baruch Yisrael God gave us three gifts and all three come with great pain the three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim, it's uh, giving up hours and time. And if you really be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower. It's Yisurim. It's not easy. 
anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it is the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. That three different fonts on the page. It's uh, it's written in a language that uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh in the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biasurian. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes by Yisurin. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift. Meaning we're not entitled. The language of matona is always that you're not entitled. It's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But the Talmud, when it says matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chochem. You have to earn it. You're not entitled there to Israel, you have to earn it. How do you earn it? Be Yisurin, right? And we can all testify what that means. The Jewish people for over the past hundred years here in Eretz Israel, every day is Yisurin. Every day is problems. Every day is blood. Every day is all of the difficulties that we're so well aware of. And the greatest Yisurin is that you don't see any way out of it. That's, you know, as long as you see a way out of it, then people, uh, people uh, almost are happy to absorb the Yusurim. But Yusurim on end, with no way out, so that already is a different level of pain. And the third gift that Gemara says is Olam eternity, immortality. So you only gain that also through sacrifice. You only gain that also through willing to undergo sacrifice and pain. So because of that, we have this great concept that Eretz Yisrael has to be earned. Now you have another concept that God promised it to us. He told us from the beginning, He told Avram Avinu, I'm giving you this land. It's going to be yours. He told it to Yitzchak. He told it to Yaakov. He's told it to us from the beginning of time. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. The only thing is that when it comes uh, to the bottom line, uh, it's not our land. Avram Avinu wants uh, to bury his wife, Sora. So he has to buy tomorrow some Achbela from the Bnei Ches, from Ephron, for, for an enormous amount of money. The Rashi there quotes the Medrash that says Avram, the, the greatness of Avram was that he didn't say to God, but you promised me, you said it's my land. What do you mean i got to pay him 400 shekel over La Socher, the best mint coins? You promised it to me. And Yitzchak digs wells all over the country, and all the wells the Philistines uh, take over, they stop them up, they throw them out. And the Yitzhak does not say, but you promised me that the land is mine. And Yaakov Avinu, when he comes back from Lovan, so he has to buy the land by Shem. And he doesn't say again, you know, God, you promised me. You told me it would be mine. So that's part of the definition of Yisurin. 
Yisurin is when you have to buy and sacrifice for what is yours. What belongs to you already. You have to start all over again. Which is in essence what happened to the Jewish people over the last hundred years. Whether it be through uh, the Karen Kayemet or through private funds or whatever, or purchase, you, you have to buy it all over again. Because of the fact that that's Eretz Yisrael and Likmas be Yisurit. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to realize that on one hand it's ours, it was promised to us by God, and God's promises are valid. God's contract is never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it, we have to buy it, we have to fight for it, we have to bleed for it, it's not ours. And that balance, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. The Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud has almost a hidden anger at people that don't come to Eretz Yisrael when they have an opportunity to do so. When the Jewish world had an opportunity to do so. The Gemara says, for instance, by Ezra, that at the time of Ezra, most of the Jews stayed in Bavel. They didn't come back. And the Talmud says, Ilu olu kachoma, if they would have come up in waves, they would have, they would have come home, then the second temple would have had all of the spiritual glory and miracles that the first temple had. But because the Jews didn't want it, so God says, okay, so... You don't want it? I, I don't want it either. They didn't come back. And throughout the history of the Second Temple, there were tremendous uh, Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean basin, in Rome, in Greece, in Bovell, in, uh, uh, in Egypt, in Alexandria. And the rabbis always held that against them. And therefore the rabbi said, for instance, Hoshivani Hashem, the Lord has made me dwell in darkness, Zu Talmudo Shalbovel. That's the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, which the Gemara speaks about itself, is darkness because it was composed in Bovel. And uh, Bovel uh, had a very, very high spiritual state. Great Talmidic Chachomim, great Yeshivas, a great Jewish community. So, let me just quote to you a few Gemaras. Because the Gemara says that the land itself has a holiness to it. The land itself has a holiness to it. It's called Eretz HaKodesh, the Holy Land. So you don't hear it so much amongst Jews, but in the non-Jewish world they still call it the Holy Land. Eretz HaKodesh, the land itself has holiness, independent of who is there. And independent of how people behave there. The land itself is holy. So the Gemara says, an interesting Gemara, Rabbi Brokio, Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, Hoyu Metaili in Derech Shar Tveria. 
two of the Talmidim of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan had the great yeshiva in Tveria in the third century. So two of his Talmidim, Rabbi Brokia and Rabbi Lozer ben Pedos, uh, they were uh, taking a walk by the Yam Kinneret, by uh, the gate to Tveria. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of the Talmud, Tveria, as today, was a great burial ground. Had large Jewish cemeteries. The uh, great hill uh, on which the tomb of Reb Meir Balanes perches on top, that whole hill is a cemetery. has thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of graves in it. Because... The cemeteries at the time of the Talmud were caves that were dug into the side of the mountain and that uh, because of the shortage of land uh, they uh, let the body decompose for a year and then they collected the bones and put them in an ossuary in a ceramic jar and that jar they put in the, in the cave and then they had room to bury again. It was a uh, different system than we are accustomed to. In any event, they are at the gates of Tveria, and they see they're bringing bodies from Chutzlaretz, right, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. So here we have two different opinions. And the two opinions are very sharply stated. And you can hear them both today as well. They resonate in our world. Omar lo rabrokio mahoilu elu. Who needs them? What value are they? Would they come now to get buried here? Bechayeyem heinichu osi. When they were alive, they didn't come. They weren't interested to live in Eretz Israel. Ubemisosom bola. And now they come. And we ask corpses. Anikore aleim, I say that this posik refers to them. Vinachlosi samtem letoeva. That's bechayechem. My country, my land, the land of Israel. You treated it abominably. That was while you were alive. You didn't come. Vatovo vatetamu esartzi. And now you have come and you have defiled my country because a mace brings with it, Tuma brings with it defilement the Misaskem so he's not very happy he didn't come, he said who needs you now Omar lo Rabbi Elezer so Rabbi Elezer ben Pedos said to him no, 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 you're wrong lo he it's not correct even Shehein Nigborim Beretz Yisrael since they will be buried in the land of Israel, v'niten lahem gush ofor shel Eretz Yisrael, and they will have the dust, the dirt of Eretz Yisrael will cover their bodies, mechaperes, it brings forgiveness to them. It says, v'chiper admosol amo, Moshe Rabbeinu said, the land of Israel is a kapora for the people. And therefore, uh, if uh, they come even to be buried, so then the holiness of the land is such that that fact that they're buried here is alone sufficient 
to bring forgiveness for all their sins. Now, uh, we realize uh, that throughout the ages, the Jews desired to be buried in Eretz Israel. And they came, their bodies were brought from far distant countries in order to be able to be buried in Eretz Israel. And one of the few uh, uh, permissible uh, times... Rabbi Beryl Wine in our nine days format with the uh, lecture on the land of Israel from his Jewish Values series here at JMNAM. Uh, any and from all, do the entire land of Israel uh, lecture early tomorrow morning starting after Modani at 6 o'clock. Uh, any information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Want to wish a happy birthday to uh, Mati Zweig. Yes, he's Zweig, who uh, normally does our Wednesday live lunch, uh, informed me that his wife is celebrating a birthday today. So, Mati, happy birthday to you from all of us here. At JM and the AM. And I did get a note from listener Sino, which I didn't see till after yesterday's show. Mazel tov to great nephew Akiva Zeitlin of Muncie celebrated his bar mitzvah last week in Sfat, Israel. Mazel to Akiva's parents, Mati and Chavi Zeitlin, his siblings, and the entire Zeitlin and Lawrence family. Special Mazel tov to Akiva's Elta Zaidi, Mr. Lou Lawrence of North Miami Beach, his Elta Bubby, Mrs. Clara Klein of Brooklyn, and to his Bubby and Zaidi, Rabbi Mrs. Shimon and Hannah Lawrence of Staten Island. And that comes with much love, of course, from the Eisenmans down in Florida. J.M. in the A.M. with a reminder that uh, as we do each year, and we try to do it on the 3rd of Av, because that was the day it was originally delivered, my father's eulogy, the Shloshim eulogy of the Labavitcher Rebbe from 19 years ago. We'll do that at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning right here at J.M. in the A.M. Also, the O.U. has uh, plenty of plans for Tisha B'Av Day, as they have been doing over the last few years. On Thursday, representatives of the OU will be with us and we'll discuss the unique webcast that they will be doing on Tuesday, Tishabov, here at JM in the AM. Also, keep in mind that Tishabov morning on Tuesday, the 16th of July, one week from today, we will have a Kinnis service live on the air between 6 and 9. It is uh, one of those amazing services that we present here at JM in the AM. Um, services meaning, meaning community service. Uh, it will be a Kinnis service in that we will read Kinnis and explain them on the radio. Also, uh, keep in mind that at 2 o'clock on uh, Tishabov with Talis and Tefillin, we'll dive in Mincha with Amcha, Rabbi Avi Weiss and company at the uh, United Nations, Isaiah Wall right across the street from the United Nations, 1st Avenue at 43rd Street in New York City. Mincha with Talis and Tefillin will begin at 2 p.m., I hope everybody will have an opportunity to come on by. There will be special guest speakers. It's always an inspiring gathering. Come on by and um, and Davin Mincha with us at the Isaiah Wall. That is uh, at the United, right across from the United Nations on 1st Avenue at 43rd Street in New York City. We look forward to keeping a 36-year tradition going. Achenu Yisrael and Achim our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery. Uh, uh, Rockland County, rather, at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web. JMTheAM.org. And that wraps up a Tuesday, 2nd of Menachem Av edition 
of JM in the AM. More coming up on our stream in terms of acapella music for the nine days. And, of course, plenty more tomorrow morning starting at 6 a.m. Told the Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember to past, live the present, and trust the future.